Well, we uh, are continuing in the book of Exodus this morning. Uh, We have been in the book of Exodus for uh, a few weeks now, picking up where we were uh, a couple of years ago. And we are uh, right here in the middle of uh, the Ten Commandments. And so we're going to be looking uh, this morning at the Sixth Commandment. Well, uh, I like to listen to podcasts. If you know me, you know I like to listen to podcasts. If if you ask me what music I'm listening to, it's probably a podcast, which isn't music, uh, because that's what I like to do. Uh, and one of my favorite podcasts is uh, Freakonomics Radio. Uh, it just kind of explores a lot of uh, random things, and uh, it's just fascinating to me personally. Uh, but I listened to one of their podcasts uh, a few months ago, I believe it was, uh, and it was entitled Breaking Our Addiction to Contempt. And it had uh, author Arthur Brooks Arthur Books on about his book, uh, Love Your Enemies. And in his book, he says, people often characterize the current moment as being angry. I wish this were true because anger tends to be self-limiting. But then when you mix it with disgust and it becomes contempt, it's a totally different thing. And in his interview, Uh, He talked about the difference between anger and contempt. He said, anger is a basic negative emotion. The negative emotions are produced by stimuli of your limbic system. It's kind of your lizard brain. Anger is a hot emotion that says, I care what you think and I want it to change. The problem is when you mix these emotions into complex emotions, so shame and guilt are complex emotions, for example, and contempt is this nasty cocktail of anger plus disgust, which is not a hot emotion anymore. It's a cold emotion. It says you are worthless. And, I, and what you said is worthless. You are beneath my regard. And that's something that should be reserved for something that's not human. Have you seen this in our culture today? This contempt, this disregard for one another, this ability to totally uh, stop engaging with other human beings because we disagree with them and actually we discuss, they disgust us. We have contempt for them. What could we do possibly to break our addiction to contempt? Because it seems like this sort of endless cycle that you see kind of all over the place in every uh, sort of industry field, uh, every political spectrum. It, it's kind of just everywhere in our culture right now. Well, I actually think the title of Brooks' book, Love Your Enemies, is in fact the way forward. And that's actually exactly what God's law tells us to do. As I said, we've been looking at the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, and we are right in the middle. We are at number six, and it's a pretty simple command. You must not murder. You must not murder. Exodus 20, verse 13. Why, why, why is this command a part of the Ten Commandments? Because it, it may actually seem pretty obvious to us. Like, this seems like an obvious rule. Do not murder. But is it actually obvious to us? Is it something that we uh, should see as obvious? It seems that there's an assumption based in this command that people have value and worth. But why should we have that assumption? 
Why should we have the assumption that people have value and worth? If the prevailing secular notion in our culture is correct, and essentially the strong survive, whether that's a uh, story of human origin or just the way in which it plays out actually in our society, if that's true, why care about valuing human beings? You could say that it's the way in which our culture and society have evolved and progressed. But then again, if you watch the news at all, have we actually progressed in any way? Do we actually value human beings? Or do we not? Something I think deep inside of us resonates with this command and says, this is the right and normal expectation because, not, not because we've so advanced as a culture that we're beyond uh, barbaric cultures in which there was much more violence potentially, although I think that's arguable. Something in us knows that we have value and dignity because we are stamped with God's glory. The reality is that this command is rooted in this idea that the Bible teaches us of the image of God or the doctrine of the imago Dei, which simply means the image of God. It maybe is the most important doctrine in the Christian faith that needs to be rediscovered and unpacked in our day because it's really been assumed and undervalued for large portions of church history, in particular in our American context, it has been undervalued, assumed, or actually wrongly, uh, uh, wrongly disengaged from, wrongly set aside. Even if it was in face value held, it was not actually in practice. We've not really believed it. But it is foundational to us understanding why the Lord would say you must not murder. So let's go back to Genesis 1, 26 to 27 and see what God teaches us about the image of God. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There is an incredible profoundness to this creation account of what it means to be made in God's image. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of those pieces here. We're not in the book of Genesis. We're in the book of Exodus. And so we need to summarize some pieces of what it means to be made in God's image. But one thing that we can say for sure in the midst of this is that each person, every person, is uniquely stamped with God's image. We are like him. To be stamped with an image is to be a representation of. We are like God. Now, certainly there are ways that we are unlike him. That's very clear in scripture. That's why we are not the same, right? We are stamped with an image of God. We are not God. We are profoundly not like God in very important ways. And yet, nothing else in the universe is stamped with God's image. In the creation account, Creation is beautiful. Animals are amazing. I mean, if you look, if you really look at the universe, 
It is incredible. It is incredible. The more we develop technology to see the far reaches of the universe or to see the depths of the ocean, the more we see how incredible God's creation is and how so far more advanced it is than the technology we create to see it. We have to create incredible technology to be able to start to see the ends of the universe and we can't even get close. It's incredible. And yet, in the midst of all of those things, there is one thing in the universe that is stamped with God's image. Humans. You. You are stamped with God's image. Meaning we are to be like mirrors that reflect who he is and his glory. We have the capacity for love, for joy, for thinking, for reason, for emotion, for holiness. And two things that are very clear in the creation account that we have the capacity for as those stamped in the image of God is the ability to speak and communicate, right? God speaks the universe into existence and he is communicating to his people through his word, this is what I'm like. He speaks it. We do that also. We speak and communicate. Now, certainly other creatures communicate, but not like humans communicate. Not in the creation of art and beauty and the ability to communicate complex things to one another. That is one of those pieces. The other is the ability to create and cultivate. We talked about this last week about what it means to cultivate children what it means to cultivate those under authority, what it means to create. And we're gonna deal with this more too when we get into uh, how God instructs the people of Israel to create the tabernacle and why our work is valuable. Sometimes we have this idea that if I'm not working in the church or working in ministry in some way, like God doesn't really care about my work. No, he cares greatly about your work because he said he created them to reign over the world, to have dominion, to have cultivation, to be like him and to create more things. This is a unique human ability to create and to cultivate life and more culture. It's a glorious thing. This is why God sees the taking of life as a big deal. Because Life is stamped, human life is stamped with God's glory. It's stamped with his image. And that's why this commandment, as basic as it seems, whoops, let me go back. As basic as it seems, you must not murder, is incredibly important. So what does the commandment, you must not murder, what does it mean? What does it tell us? to do, and what does it tell us not to do? If you remember, uh, last week and the week before, I think I mentioned in both of them, uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism. The Westminster Larger Catechism is uh, one of the doctrinal standards for us as a church. Uh, It was written by a group of uh, pastor theologians uh, in uh, the 17th century, 1643 to 1653, this 10-year period of these... uh, theologians gathering together. Sometimes they're called the Westminster Divines, really an old term for theologian. And they're gathered together and commissioned to write a doctrinal standard for the Church of England. And so they write three documents, really, the Westminster Confession of Faith, 
the larger and shorter catechisms. The confession of faith is uh, just really the statement of what we believe about the Bible. And the catechisms are teaching tools. The shorter was to be used with children and the larger was to be used with adults. Now, interestingly enough, the Church of England never actually adopted the Westminster Standards. Uh, However, many other churches did adopt those standards and we did as well. We are in that same theological tradition as a church and a denomination. Now, what's important is these standards are helpful. They are not scripture, right? And they, they themselves say they are not scripture. And actually, our denomination says the same thing. Uh, I, as a pastor in our denomination, I'm allowed to take exceptions to the Westminster Standards as long as it doesn't strike at any of the vitals Uh, the very, very important pieces of it, but I'm allowed to take exceptions to that. I can't take exceptions to the scripture. Like I can't go up for ordination and be like, yeah, Exodus 20, 13, must not murder. I disagree with that. So I'm just gonna take an exception to it. It's fine. Like, no, I can't do that. God's word is final. It is the authority. What it says goes. The Westminster Confession and the Catechism, I can take exception to. I can say, you know, I don't think they get this right here. That's allowed. Now, you may be from a totally different theological tradition and be like, yeah, I don't like this idea of creeds or confessions or documents that are old and kind of, yeah, they're backwards and outdated and all these things. Well, here's the thing. Everyone believes in a creed, right? You could say, no, 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 I don't believe in a creed. I just believe in Jesus and the Bible. Well, that, that itself is a creed. It's just a statement of belief. But also the question is like, what do you believe about Jesus? Like, do you believe that Jesus is God or do you believe that he's like sort of divine? Because there are like ancient and current heresies that say those things. Like there are uh, folks who believe that Jesus isn't fully God, right? We disagree with that. Well, how do we know how to disagree with that? Well, a confession really helps us. It articulates what is it about the Bible that we believe? So it's a helpful thing. Now, those creeds can certainly be weaponized to like disregard folks and to sniff out uh, minor theological differences and make them huge things. That absolutely is true. But an error on, a, on something doesn't negate its value, right? That's an error of using it, right? You can use things uh, in error, but it doesn't necessarily make the thing bad itself. So we need to be ready to use it for a good purpose. So I do believe it's very helpful. And in particular, I believe the Westminster Larger Catechism is very helpful in explaining the law in particular. This starts around question 100 or so, I think. And it walks through and in each commandment it takes, it says, what does this commandment teach us we're not to do? What does it prohibit? And then what does it teach us to do? What does it say? This is your duty as a Christian. You should do this. So what does this commandment tell us not to do, and what does it tell us to do? Well, it tells us to not take away life. But it also says in there that quarreling, anger, excessive passion, and any other excess that leads to situations that might take away life have to be avoided. Something that might lead to the situation in which I take away life, right? So it even includes in there like, excessive drinking because that could lead to a situation that is dangerous that could lead to the taking of life. That's how important this commandment is. 
It's not just the like, hey, don't kill anyone. It's the don't get close to killing anyone, right? Like this is very important. So we're going to say, let's stay far away from murdering. Now, it's not just that. There's also the positive. It mentions that you must prevent unjust taking of life. Anything that leads to the unjust taking of life is a violation of this commandment. Meaning, Christian, you are called to promote justice. To not allow for the unjust taking of life. To use everything in your power and spheres of influence to prevent the unjust taking of life. Now, Jesus talks about this dynamic in the law as well as the the positive and the negative together in this. Now, he's not adding to the law when he talks about this. When Jesus talks about the law, sometimes people misinterpret this and say, well, like the Old Testament law was like, you know, it said don't murder, but Jesus was like, no, let's ratchet that up. No, that's not what he's saying in the midst of this because the passage I'm about to read for you, just literally before this, Jesus says, nothing will be taken away or added to the law. Like, I didn't come to take away or add to the law. So he can't be meaning I'm adding to the law. What he's meaning here is he's saying, you have, I'm not reinterpreting the law. I'm actually expounding it rightly. The elders have taught you this thing, right? In the first century, Jesus is showing up in a context in which there is a lot of religious teaching about the law that is adding to the law. We talked about this uh, last week, right? Uh, these traditions of the elders. And so when Jesus uses the phrase, you heard it was said, but I say to you, he's saying, this is what the elders have said about this, but I'm saying this. When he says it is written, he's saying, I'm quoting scripture, right? So when he says, you've heard it was said, he's not saying, hey, you heard Moses said this, like meaning, hey, I'm quoting scripture in this, even if there is a quotation here. What he's saying is, you've heard the interpretation of Moses that's this. That's not right. Here's what it actually is, right? So, so that's the context, right? So Jesus isn't disagreeing with the law. He isn't ratcheting it up. He's telling you like it should be told, all right? So Matthew 5, 21 through 26, he says, you heard that our ancestors were told, right? Again, this is, you heard this. This is the elders teaching, You must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Now you have to understand in the midst of the first century, in the midst of first century Judaism, and as you'll see as we walk through Exodus, the importance of the temple and sacrifice, this is pretty radical, And is in line with what the prophets will eventually say in which it's like, hey, you guys do all these religious ceremonies, but if you're hating each other, it don't matter. Because that's that like you're defeating the whole purpose, right? So what Jesus is saying is you come here on Sunday morning, you're singing to me, but you hate the person that stands behind you. Like stop singing and go talk to them. 
Because what you're doing here is not offering worship to God. It's false because you're not actually living this out in life. When you are on the way to, the, to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. What he's saying is you have to try to resolve things before they escalate. The call of the Christian is to resolve things before they escalate. He goes on to say in verses 43 through 48, you have heard the law that says love your, enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is one of those spots where he's quoting and saying what the elders would have said, but that other part isn't in quotes because it's not in scripture. Hate your enemy is not in scripture. However, that is the interpretation that the religious leaders of the time had. It was very exclusive. It's okay to hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true, true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you're watching this and you don't believe in God and you live an unjust life, you ought to be thankful that you have breath because the Lord has been gracious to you. The Lord has been gracious to you. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even Corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. What Jesus is saying is, the commandment you must not murder teaches you you must love your enemies. And you must be different than the, the world. If you love only your friends, how are you different from anyone else? How are you imaging God? Because he loves his enemies. He loves rebels. He brings sunshine upon everyone, even the unjust. So what does it mean then for us? I want to spend the rest of this time talking about what does it mean for us to, to do this? What does it mean for us to do this? To not murder and to promote justice and life. Remember, not just stopping the taking of life, but actually promoting the thriving of life. How do we maintain an ethic of love, particularly for enemies, while pursuing redemptive justice? Now, I want to talk about some practical things and some potentially hot button issues to that effect. I'm probably gonna say something that will make you uncomfortable. And if I don't say something that makes you uncomfortable yet, just wait like 10 minutes and then I probably will, right? Because the reality is God's word just hits everyone. It hits everyone. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we're really honest with ourselves, it's gonna hit us in places that we're like, you know, I'm not super comfortable with that. But I need to be challenged by the Holy Spirit through God's word to put my life in line with Jesus and loving enemies. 
So we got to talk about all these things, all right? So they're not in any particular order or anything like that. Just need to talk about some of these things. Now, a lot of these are really systemic issues. I want to focus first on systemic issues, meaning that they are pervasive in our culture and bigger than just like a one-on-one conversation with another person. We'll get to those things in a moment. I think certainly there are personal connections in not murdering, right? Like that, that is a, there is a lot of personal violence that happens among individuals. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But if we're talking about preventing anything that leads to the unjust taking of life, those are largely systemic issues that need bigger solutions, right? They're not just individual, like, hey, I can go have a conversation with this one person and it will change everything. No, these are larger systemic issues that we need to grapple with. So the first, as fairly obvious from this text, is the issue of abortion. We need to prevent the unjust taking of life. Now, we need to remember that life may begin in the womb, but it doesn't end in the womb. Meaning if you care only about life in the womb, and if the goal of this passage is to say, you must not murder, let's focus all of our attention on ending abortion without actually caring about the realities that exist that may cause someone to pursue that, then you're not caring about it. We need to care about every person made in the image of God from womb to tomb. Not caring simply that a life has been saved, but are we actually helping to create a thriving environment for life? Meaning we have to come in a lot of grace and humility to those who are experiencing the very challenging and difficult decisions surrounding abortion. Like we make it so horrible when we say things like uh, calling individuals murderers and not quite understanding the, the depth of painful decision that is involved in that. Now I'm not saying that there isn't very real connections to murder here. Obviously, I'm preaching on it in this text. I believe it's an unjust taking of life. And yet, are we grappling with the reality of what would cause someone to potentially choose that? Are we dealing with poverty? Are we dealing with creating social safety nets? Now, I don't really care how that's done. Public policy, personal charity, all those things. But I will say that the position that says that the church ought to handle all of those things, we're not equipped to handle all those things. We're just simply not. Now, we could be potentially, but you can't say the church must take care of the poor and all social safety nets and have the average giving be 2.5% of income. Like, that just doesn't work. So if that's your position, then you gotta give to make that your position, right? Like, that's just, it's just not possible. We don't have the resources, I'm not talking about this church individually. I'm talking about the universal church. The church in America doesn't have the resources to accomplish those things. So we ought to probably partner with others who are accomplishing those things or promote public policy that takes care of people. We ought to care about those issues. Not just a a political hot button issue that says, hey, we're going after this and it's the only issue and we're only gonna hammer this and anyone who disagrees is a murderer. Like, This is unhelpful and leads to the very things that we were talking about, contempt. That's why we're going to get to this in a moment. In the pursuit of justice in this issue and every other issue, we have to love our enemies. Love our enemies. 
Treat them charitably, kindly. Engage in meaningful discussion. We're not going to accomplish anything by shouting about it. We're not going to accomplish anything by being uh, people that are mean-spirited and full of contempt for other people. How is that promoting life? How? It's not. At the same time, we have to grapple with the reality of there are some unjust positions taken by our culture on this issue. It's an unjust taking of life. We need to care about it. There are other systemic issues that we need to care about. Systemic racism. It kills. It kills physically. It has killed historically. It kills emotionally. It's an issue that does, it leads to the unjust taking of life. If, if the Westminster standards tell us that we should avoid excess in drink in order to prevent the unjust taking of life, we ought to be even far more concerned in avoiding the prejudice and dealing with the prejudice in our own heart and the hearts of others that lead to the unjust taking of life. We ought to learn about history to understand how these systemic issues happen. And then we ought to engage in them meaningfully. So like shouting that everyone who talks about racism like is a Marxist and there's like the fear of critical race theory and all these things. It's, it's very silly. It's very silly. And it doesn't actually lead to the promotion of life. How are we going to have real meaningful conversations about the history of racism, particularly within the church, if that's our position? It's full of contempt, full of hatred. We have to care about how this issue is a reality in people's lives. That often leads to the next issue, mass incarceration and police brutality. Over the past several years, this has become more visible, not necessarily more prevalent, but more visible. Any unjust taking of life. There have been very clear instances of unjust taking of life. Things need to change. It's not just about individual instances, but things need to change about the systems of policing in this country. The systems of violence and policing and incarceration in this country that does not lead to the thriving of life. I actually just saw recently the, the numbers in the, we, we've talked about the Delaware County Jail Project recently, but I just saw the numbers of daily inmates and it's gone up since building a new jail, which is exactly the thing that many of us were concerned about. Is crime actually increasing or are we just filling more beds? And we're filling them from out of, out of county to raise county profits. That's being said, that's a good thing. I think lowering the population in the jail is the goal. So we should work together with community partners and churches and others to actually accomplish that goal. We want life to thrive. I'm not saying that prisons don't need to exist or that policing doesn't need to exist or any of those things, right? The, the fact that there's a command, do not murder, also implies there is real evil in the world that needs to be handled, right? That's very clear. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, is it just or unjust? And are there better solutions for certain 
aspects of those things. We, we over-criminalize lots of things and leads to more violence and death. There is also a systemic violence and a culture of death in our culture. We have a violence problem in America. And it pervades across economics and race in America. Everyone wants to blame others for it, but we have a true violence problem. We have a gun violence problem and just a violence problem. Now, this is not a sermon against the second amendment, but let's be clear, the second amendment is not greater than the sixth commandment. So if one wins, it's the sixth commandment, right? Certainly not a sermon saying, yes, the second amendment has done more good in promoting life than not. That's a debate we can have. It's not what I'm gonna do this morning, but that's a debate we can have. But the sixth commandment is far more important than the second amendment. What can we do to promote life in our culture? You see, we glorify violence. Just look at our entertainment. Look at the things we give ourselves to. We glorify violence, and then we're shocked with how violence, whether that's domestic violence, gang violence, gun violence, school shootings, mass shootings, happen in our nation. And it doesn't happen in the same way around the rest of the world. There's some unique American violence that exists in our culture. And we are a church living in this place. So we have to care about it because the commandment says you must not murder. So we have to actually care about what that means, right? Owning a gun may not be inherently sinful. However, I do think it's good to consider the wisdom of such a thing given the culture we live in. What does it mean to display the ethic of love in a culture of violence, right? Similarly, if we were to say, like alcohol, I don't think is inherently sinful, but would you throw a kegger at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting? Like that would be very foolish. So would you glorify violence in a super violent culture? Shouldn't the church say something distinctively different about life and the value of life? Related to this gun violence problem, some of the biggest pieces of gun violence problem is suicide. The reality of you must not murder, we must care about suicide prevention and mental health. We need to not concern ourselves just simply about ourselves, but about our neighbors. We need to check in on others. One of the things the Westminster Larger Catechism says is our duty is to comfort the distressed. You must not murder. Comfort the distressed is part of you must not murder. There are distressed people around us. It also says we must protect and defend the innocent. There are distressed people around us and we need to create a culture in which it's okay to talk about what we're dealing with. The church isn't always a safe place to do that, but we need to be a place in which we can do that. We need to be open and honest. If you're struggling mentally and emotionally, you need to pursue therapy. Talk about your mental health. We need to pursue that and be honest and support it financially. I've I've been honest with other folks. Like there's been seasons in my life of different things related to uh, feeling some mild depression things at different times. And I've been seeing a counselor for the last six, nine months. And it's been amazing. It's really done a lot to unwind lies that I believe in my heart that no one else would know, right? Like everyone sees like, yeah, it's totally fine. Like, 
No, no, there's real junk in my life that I believe that affects who I am. Now, maybe I'm totally different. I, I can't really tell because there's only a couple people here, <laughs> Logan and I and Paul. Uh, but I don't think I'm alone in that. Like you gotta be honest and wrestle through those things. We should support those things financially and care about them. Just as much as we use our mercy fund to support financial needs for those that are physical needs, we ought to support emotional and mental needs because they're as important and they can lead to the unjust taking of life. We need to help create an environment in which people will thrive. Poverty and mental health and drug addiction and economic crisis are all interrelated in ways that can lead to suicide. We need to address real root problems and be concerned about the well-being of our neighbors, making sure they can thrive. Also, those who are in, not in situations of poverty, but in situations of wealth or middle-class folks feel the pressure for academic success or the allure of social media. There's well-documented uh, studies on Instagram's destruction of young women's mental st- stability in particular and the emotional and mental well-being of all of this for young people leading to pressure that leads to suicide. In 2018, suicide was the third leading cause of death in the U.S. for ages 5 through 14. It was the second leading cause of death for ages 15 through 24 and ages 25 through 44. So from ages five to 44, it was either the second or third leading cause of death in this country. Oh, church of Jesus Christ, we should lament and weep and pray and fast and cry out to God for this. And then we should strategize and step into the lives of people who are struggling with love and compassion and care. We can't do that with hate in our heart. You see, these promotions of justice, it's caring about issues of suicide, caring about issues of abortion, caring about issues of systemic injustice and racism, all of these things we can't do with hate in our heart because we won't show up in care and compassion. Refugees in situations of war, Will we defend the vulnerable? Protect and defend the vulnerable. That's what the commandment tells us. To not do so when it is in our power to do so breaks the sixth commandment. So the way American culture has responded to refugees is pretty appalling. But when the church joins in and rejects the vulnerable, when it's in its power to help defend and protect and provide for the vulnerable, violates this commandment and dishonors the image of God in other people. Social media. Here's another uh, systemic issue, I think, that is bigger than just us, but I think we are personally implicated in those things. You know, sometimes in social media, Again, you know, there's no one here for me to check this with, but so maybe it's just me. But have you ever done this thing where you hate scroll? You scroll through trying to find something that you disagree with so you can disregard other people. 
trying to find something where it's, maybe it's someone, and, and maybe it's things that are legitimately wrong, right? Like this person is legitimately wrong about this justice issue, and I feel justified in hating them because they're wrong. It's subtle. But when you're feeling bad about something in your own life, sometimes you go there in order to feel justified in righteous anger, but really it's coming from a place of contempt and hate, harboring annoyance and hatred in our hearts for those on the wrong side of justice. And the tool itself, social media itself, we are being conditioned by it to fuel that. We're being conditioned by it to fuel that outrage and polarization and hatred. And so we get on there daily and we hate and we murder in our heart over and over again. And then on top of all of those things, there's the personal relationships in our lives. Hatred toward others in our family. Hatred toward your neighbors or your coworkers or your friends, or folks in the church, or folks outside the church. You all know what I'm talking about. There are people in your life that you're like, I wish they weren't in my life. And I harbor just a little bit too much anger and a little bit of hatred in my heart towards it. The question for us to consider in light of this commandment is how can we be devoted and pursue radical justice if we have hatred in our heart. Because the commandment tells us not simply to not murder, but to promote justice. But what about what Jesus says about the way our very hearts are prone to hatred? Even in the pursuits of justice, ironically, hating those we deem on the wrong side of justice. The truth is we can't do that. In all of this, the ethic of love is the only thing that can bring about redemptive justice. And in the pursuit of justice, there is a threat in this life that as you pursue justice, you will get jaded and cynical because it doesn't come quickly and doesn't come in many situations this side of glory. You will become jaded and cynical and hatred and and start hating others. There is a threat that the pursuit of justice will strip you of your love, which is why Jesus says, you are to love your enemies. Love your enemies. That inherently means for the Christian, those who are on the wrong side of justice, those who are on the wrong side of the Lord, those whom you disagree with on super important things, those who actually might persecute and hate you, those who might seek to harm you, those who might seek your life, you are to love. But Jesus, you just don't know about the people that we're talking about here. You don't think Jesus knows what it means to love enemies? Vengeance is never an option and is not justice. 
Romans 12, 19 through 21 says this, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. If in doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. You see, there's a very real difference between vengeance and redemptive justice. Redemptive justice is real justice. There's real correction, real consequences, and reparations for wrong that was done. However, vindictive punishment and vengeance is never a Christian option. The ethic of love demands it. One of my favorite books over the last few years that I read is a book by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called Strength to Love, and it's a collection of his sermons. Um, really encourage you to get it. And he has a sermon called Loving Your Enemies. He says this, I'll, I'll quote three sections here because it's just, it's just really helpful. He says, we never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. By its very nature, hate destroys and tears down, but its, ver- but its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love transforms with redemptive power. Now he says, this does not mean that we abandon our righteous efforts. With every ounce of our energy, we must continue to rid this nation of the incubus of segregation. This is Martin Luther King talking about their pursuit of justice. But we shall not in the process relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationists. This is the only way to create the beloved community. You see, the point is, the question is, in our pursuit of justice, what's the end goal? Is the end goal to be protect us and hate them? Or is the end goal come join the beloved community in which we experience the triune God and his love? If that's the end goal, then the ethic of love is the only pursuit that we can have. The only way that we can pursue justice is with an ethic of love for the one in which we are pursuing justice against. Our enemies. To our most bitter opponents, this is King again, we say, We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot, in all good conscience, obey your unjust laws because non cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Woo! Non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. You see, what he's saying here is it's not that we're going to stop doing this. We're not obeying unjust laws. We're continuing to fight for justice. We're continuing to protest. We're continuing to march. We're continuing to pursue these things. But you will not take from us our love for you because Jesus gave it to us, not you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at, mid, at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. 
The goal in the pursuit of redemptive justice is not to win the argument, to win the point, to win the debate, to get more people on my side of the political spectrum or anything like that, to win the vote, any of those things. No, it's to win people to Jesus and to promote the beloved community. This means that the pursuit of justice in our day for the church of Jesus Christ ought to look distinctively like Jesus. That's not true everywhere. I'm not saying we can't work with folks who are pursuing things that we believe are kingdom things together, but their motivation might be different than ours. And we got to be clear, our motivation is the ethic of love for enemy. And clear not just in saying it, but by living it. And not just publicly, but privately. Where are we going to find this? Because my hope is that you're thinking here, at some point you've said amen, at some point you've said, I'm going to shut this off. Because that's usually what happened when Jesus was like pressing in, right? So stay with me. But I'm hoping at some point you've said, yeah, but I'm not sufficient to do that. I know. You are made in God's image and yet you are broken. But the ethic of love comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus shows us love for enemies, even us, even unto death. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. The answer to pursuing this beloved community and this amazing reality in which we can lay down contempt and love our enemies and pursue justice and the right thing at the same time, we don't have to choose. That sounds so appealing, doesn't it? Given our culture. The only way to do that is to repent of our own sin, to be honest about it and to run to Jesus and be transformed by his love. And in doing so, this should humble us to embrace the image of God in everyone and embrace the ethic of nonviolent, peaceful, loving justice in pursuit of the honor and dignity and worth of every human being. I mean, think of this. This is all over the Bible, but one of the most clear examples is the Apostle Paul. We looked at the book of Acts as we were walking through the book of Acts. Who's the murderer in the book of Acts? It's the Apostle Paul. And yet, the church was scared of what God was going to do. It was like, wait, are you sure? Like, like Holy Spirit, you want me to go talk to, to, to Paul? Because he's like murdering us. And yet the Holy Spirit was like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the one. You go get him. And the Lord transformed him. And we are a church because of that. Like the church spread because of those things. We so quickly in our culture of contempt write off people as wrong and backwards and whatever and done and irredeemable. If they're made in God's image, they're not irredeemable. They're made in God's image and Jesus died to make us whole. They are not irredeemable. The blood of Jesus can cover everything. So, church, 
If you want to be more oriented towards justice in the world, let me tell you what you should do. Study the love of Jesus Christ for you, his enemy on the cross. Because you can't do it with hate in your heart. If you want to be more loving towards your neighbor, study the justice of God on display in his righteous character in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because here at the cross is where love and justice meet. And here is where we can learn at the cross, at the foot of the cross, how to pursue love for enemies in our pursuit of justice. City Hope, let's meditate on the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's repent of our sin. Run to Jesus. Repent of our hatred. Because here's the thing, right? When, if the world were to come and to hear everything that we just said and conclude, you guys do some of these things. What they would say is, you're hypocrites and in contempt walk out. What Jesus says is, I know. Come here. Let me transform you. The reality is you don't have to run away because your sin has been exposed. Jesus says, no, come here. Let me transform you. Let's build a beloved community where people thrive, where the image of God is honored. Let's come to Jesus and love him and be transformed by him. Let's pray together. Father, We love you. You are gracious to us. Lord, we need you. This is hard. This is hard word from your scriptures. And Holy Spirit, when you do hard things, you do them softly on our hearts. So Holy Spirit, would you open up and make us tender, make our hearts tender to loving enemies? Would we wrestle through these things in your word and be transformed by them? Jesus, would you be honored? You have done a glorious thing in loving your enemies. Would you transform us to love our enemies? To lay down contempt. To love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.